Welcome to Healthcare Mixtape, where we're curating the ultimate playlist of healthcare content that you may have missed the first time. Here we share bonus episodes and greatest hits from some of our favorite shows, as well as exclusive interviews with industry insiders, all focused on healthcare changemakers and the disruption of the now. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. I'm Jared Johnson, your playlist curator, and it's time to mix it up. All right, today we continue our Greatest Hits collection where we're replaying some of the top episodes from Healthcare Wrap and other podcasts. Our episode today is titled Disrupt Today, Win Tomorrow, and it originally aired in April 2022. Our guest was Ann Summers-Hogg, Senior Research Fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute, and she dove deep into the benefits and challenges of disrupting ourselves today in order to better position ourselves for tomorrow. This episode is on our Greatest Hits playlist because Ann Summers provides an important research-based view for hospitals and health systems to address affordability and accessibility while repositioning their business strategies for the future. We hope you find this super high value. Check it out. Let the mix begin. The flow, the flow, the flow. Okay, let's get into the flow. Ann Summers-Hogg is in the house. Ann Summers is a senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. She's going to share some provocative thinking about affordability and accessibility, not necessarily just from the industry's point of view, because we've heard plenty of that. We're going to hear it from the consumer's point of view. We're going to dive deep into the benefits and challenges of disrupting ourselves today in order to better position ourselves for tomorrow. So Ann Summers, welcome to the Healthcare Wrap. Thank you so much for having me, Jared. I'm really excited about the conversation. Oh, I'm excited too. Uh, Tell me first and foremost, what did I miss in your bio? Like what else would you like our listeners to know about you and your background? Oh, I think you gave a a pretty good overview of where I am right now. As you mentioned, I'm the senior research fellow at the Clayton Christensen Institute. And for folks who don't know, we are a think tank dedicated to improving the world through disruptive innovation. We are nonprofit, nonpartisan, and we focus our research on three verticals, healthcare, which I lead, education, and global prosperity. And before joining the Institute, I did come from industry. So I spent the eight years before joining the Institute at Atrium Health, working in innovation and strategy. Then before that, I worked in management consulting for Oliver Wyman, primarily on payer strategy and how to help payers move to value-based care strategies. So really excited about the conversation today and hopefully can pull on all different components of my background. For sure. I'm curious, uh, particularly about being a senior research fellow, what does is, what is that role involve? That's a great question. I lead our healthcare research at the Institute. And this year, we are focusing our efforts around drivers of health, or what the industry historically refers to as social determinants of health. And we're doing a really broad brush of the landscape where we look across all different types of healthcare actors to identify the high performers who are able to address drivers of health or social determinants of health in order to really improve people's quality of life. And ideally, they're doing it in a sustainable, a financially sustainable way. So your listeners may be familiar with the concept of social determinants of health and know that since the passing of the ACA, there's been a lot of activity around social determinants of health or drivers of health. But as an industry, we haven't necessarily seen a lot of progress. 
So our research is seeking to identify those positive deviants, those bright spots out there who aren't just addressing drivers of health, but are truly moving the needle. So I guess I'm always kind of drawn to new approaches to solving these big challenges. And and it definitely sounds like that is that is where you are living every day. Uh, and you mentioned the term disruptive innovation. I've heard from various sides of the industry that those words, disruption and innovation, and, and I'd even add transformation to that. Sometimes those words can be a little intimidating or depending on the, the leader of the organization, sometimes that either they're attracted to that, they're interested in that, and sometimes it scares them away. Have you seen that in terms of like a difference of how you even describe the types of changes you're trying to help them do? I believe Clay Christensen actually said after the term disruptive innovation had been around for a while that if he had the opportunity, he would have named it something different. And having lived through the experience within an incumbent healthcare organization and seeking to not only teach the tenets of disruptive innovation and innovation generally, yes, people do oftentimes find it off-putting or confusing. And in that way, I think maybe the term doesn't serve us well. However, the concept when understood and applied is impeccable. The power of disruptive innovation to create change cannot be overlooked. I appreciate that perspective on that. And I appreciate you letting me go there because it's just something that's recently come up as I've had other conversations with folks. Could I actually, what do you hear from folks in terms of what specifically is confusing or do they wish was different? So I've heard from, from the human centered design side, from consultants that their work involves very clearly disrupting your existing business model And they have worked with incumbent health systems in the last six to 12 months. They have been told, yeah, we're not really interested in that. But then when they come back to the same leaders and describe it as something else to say, like, we're we're trying to help you find a, you know, a profitable path to address the new healthcare consumer, and they don't use the word disruption, they have had a better response. So I just found it really interesting. Yeah. And I think that goes to show the power of language. And as an incumbent, the concept of disruption can be off-putting and intimidating, quite frankly. So I think a lot of it is in how you use the language and also the framing of what the theory or methodology in terms of human-centered design, the value that it provides to the organization as a whole. Yeah, that's definitely what I've seen as well. So interesting. It was surprising when I heard that conversation because I use the terms a lot and I use them intentionally, the terms disruption and innovation. And I think kind of related to that really is this fact when we talk about like really where do health systems need to go? Where do all healthcare organizations go from here? There are actually a couple of posts that you've put out recently that I'd love to dive into a little bit because you were talking about affordability and accessibility for healthcare. You're talking about social determinants of health and you wrote a couple of pieces, a two-part series. It's called To Improve Individual Lives, A Top-Down Approach Won't Work. Do you want to dive into that a little bit and kind of what the premise was and and, and what the the background was behind these pieces? Definitely. And I I think at a at a high level, it gets back to what I was saying a little bit earlier about the power of language. So in the healthcare industry, we've settled on this term social determinants of health to really refer to societal population level structures that impact people's health outcomes. But when we actually talk to patients about the difficulties that they face, we aren't even really addressing 
those population level structures. We're really talking to them about their risk factors as it relates to those determinants of health. And risks in and of themselves don't give us all the information that we need in order to really help people address the problems that they face in the context of their lives. So what I posit in the article is that we really need to be asking about individuals' jobs to be done. And if your listeners aren't familiar with the concept of jobs to be done, effectively, what it explains is that as consumers, we don't just decide to use products and services. We actually hire products and services in our lives to achieve progress that we are desiring. And to really understand someone's job to be done, we have to understand the context in which they exist, as well as the progress that they are seeking. And our existing healthcare system and the way that many patient provider interactions are set up to occur, they don't really allow for this level of listening and understanding that's required to understand somebody's job to be done or the progress that they're seeing in a given situation. And if we don't really understand what people desire and the context in which they're living, we can't address the root cause of their health issues. We can't address the root cause of health inequity. We can't address the disparities that are rampant across our nation and in our health system. So really the premise of what I was arguing is we really can't take a a one size fits all and think through this lens of population level structures and just ask about risk factors. What we really need to do is try to get to the level of the individual and understand the individual so that we can address their jobs to be done. There's so much I like about this perspective, seeing things from a different lens. In fact, you use that terminology in in these posts. You talk about changing the lens to incorporate the individual's perspective. In particular, there's one phrase in in the first post where you, you talk about changing the lens by building new business models that uncover the progress that individuals seek. Can we go there for a moment in terms of uh, how does this relate to building a new business model? So it's one thing to see this problem from a different perspective through a different lens, but then this is leading to some action instead of just stopping at the, yeah, there's a problem here. One thing I really liked about these articles was how solution and action oriented it was. You talk about building new business models. What was the premise behind that? Sure. So I mentioned that While there's this need to understand and to truly listen to patients, that's not how the typical patient-provider interaction is set up. And that's because that's not how the business model of healthcare works. So predominantly in the United States, we are in a fee-for-service environment, right? Our providers get paid by the number of interactions that they have with patients. And I realize that's not blanket 100% of provider models or provider interactions because we are amidst the shift to value-based care, but predominantly fee-for-service still reigns. And in that environment, when you are incentivized to perform more transactions, you will perform more transactions, which means visits with patients will be shorter. And in 15 minutes, I can't get to know Jared and all the progress he's seeking, all of his personal context so that I can really help him 
address any issues he may be facing about his underlying drivers of health. In 15 minutes, I am incentivized in the predominant fee-for-service business model to address the pressing issue that has brought you in front of me today. Now, this is not at all to say or to point blame in any direction. It's simply the predominant business model that is currently in place in healthcare. And when I say business model, the way we think about that as the Institute at the Institute is a four box concept. So you have your value proposition, you have your resources, your processes, and your profit formula. And all of those interact to reinforce one another. So when the profit model incentivizes more transactions, then your processes in this case, or in this example that I'm giving, your visit length, your patient provider interaction length is going to be shorter. So what I posited in the article was we really need new business models. That is, we need a different incentive structure, a different profit model that will incentivize different processes. And as a result, will enable a business model to deliver on a different value proposition to the individual. And it needs to be a value proposition that is grounded in the individual's job to be done or the progress that they're seeking in terms of their health and life outcomes. Because I would actually argue people don't want more health. That's not really why people wake up in the morning. Health is a means to an end. People seek more health because it gives them vitality. It gives them the ability to live their life in the way that they want to. I love this line of thought here. Are there spots that you're seeing, are there business models, I guess, that that you're seeing that are closer to what you're describing, that are incentivized in a better way to lead us, to lead individuals to that place? Definitely. There are... I would say many organizations across not just our country, but across the world who are grounding their business models in the jobs to be done of the consumer, but also importantly in healthcare, especially in the US and the customer, because the consumer, the person receiving or accessing the health or the care services are not always equivalent to the customer. That is the person who's paying for the health and the care services. So in part two of the blog post that you referenced, I write about a couple organizations who are really redesigning their business models in a way that allow them to operate under different incentives because they have a different profit formula and thus they're able to execute different processes and deliver a different value proposition. And while they use some of the same resources as the predominant fee-for-service business model in healthcare does, they also integrate new and different ones as well. And one organization that I highlight in that second article is Factor Health. And they have an intriguing approach for a number of reasons. But one thing I really find interesting about them is they've backed up their intervention outside of the clinic. So their interventions that address drivers of health or social determinants of health are preclinical. So they aren't seeking to address somebody once they're already within the clinic walls or the hospital walls, but they're interfacing with individuals in the fabric of their lives. You're right. It's not just healthcare. We're not just waiting till people get sick anymore and then and then treat them with whatever they're they're showing at the moment. There are opportunities to go so far upstream well before that happens. And that's what I find fascinating about this is that when we're able to create business models 
that align to that fact, we're going to get to a better place as a society. What else are you hearing or researching or seeing in the industry regarding affordability and accessibility? Oh gosh, that's such a broad question. I think there are a couple different directions I could go, but one that I find increasingly interesting is the heightened emphasis that we're placing on mental and behavioral health care. And this has been needed and necessary, arguably for decades. And the pandemic has really put a spotlight on not only the growth in mental and behavioral health issues as a result of the pandemic, but also just the vastly underserved individuals who have a need that's not being addressed. And so, as I said, this isn't really new, but it's a tsunami that's really gaining speed and one that because of the pandemic, we can no longer ignore. And I was reading something from McKinsey the other day that was highlighting what an issue this is across all populations. And the CEO of Boston Children's Hospital had mentioned that during the pandemic, they were treating 50 to 70 children per day for mental or behavioral health issues, which was either doubling or tripling the amount that they had seen pre-pandemic. And it's not just kids. 25% of Gen Z respondents to a McKinsey consumer study said that they feel emotionally distressed and that that was apparently 2x what Gen X and millennials reported. So this growing tsunami of either unserved or underserved demand for mental and behavioral health care is something we can no longer ignore. And something where I see a beacon of light is if you look at digital health funding over the past few years, it's grown massively. And mental health, digital health solutions continue to be one of the most highly funded sectors. And even earlier this month, Lyra Health, a leading digital health solution for mental health needs, just got $235 million more dollars to expand their platform. And what I find really promising about this is there's a lot of research that shows digital health, mental health solutions are just as efficacious as in-person solutions. When there is such a shortage of behavioral health providers, when it's often not a type of care that is covered by people's insurance, seeing innovators and potentially disruptive models enter to address the unmet need and provide an affordable solution, an affordable and accessible solution is exciting to me and something that I hope will continue to grow and continue to be a resource to people who so desperately need it and seek it. Oh, I agree. I'm seeing the same headlines, at least as far as funding goes for some of these digital health, behavioral health apps and services. And that's very encouraging to me. I likewise recognize the need for it in our society uh, more than ever. And I think this is just kind of the, the tip of the spear. Like I think we're just starting to see the recognition of it and a flurry of activity and potential solutions that hopefully will lead ultimately to uh, us as a society to a better place. So uh, thanks for sharing that. 
One more uh, place that I'd love to just get your opinion on uh, before we go here, which sure. is is from another article, actually. I didn't see a date on it, but it was I want to say it was at least a couple of years ago. There was a quote, you were talking about the need for disruptive innovation in healthcare again, but this was from the consumer's view. And there was a quote you were talking about how well-established health systems have an essential strategic choice to make. You were talking about how they need to make it rapidly. And that sense of urgency is what drew me into this article, among other things. One part you talked about was the tendency for incumbent health systems in particular to just kind of look at things like retail health and some of these new digital health entrants and big tech, all these new players that are, that have, you know, quote unquote, new players, you know, some of them have been in healthcare for a number of years, but relatively they feel like new players because we're just hearing about them. And you're talking about this tendency of incumbent health systems, if I understood it correctly, to kind of say, sure, like, we'll just kind of let you have that low end of the market. We don't see much value to that anyway, but this kind of goes counter to, to Clayton Christensen's innovators dilemma, which is, where incumbents seed that lower end of the market to new entrants, but then in turn, that's who becomes disruptors and that has profound effects on the market. So first and foremost, do I understand that correctly? And second off, are you still seeing that in terms of like, that's what health systems are tending to do still right now? Yes, great question. So yes, that was from a few years ago. I believe I wrote it back in 2018. So it was pre-pandemic. And yes, what I was saying was, health systems do have this essential strategic choice to make in that do they fall prey to the innovator's dilemma and seed the low end of the market to these potential disruptors fleeing up market. That's what Clay Christensen would predict. But what I was arguing was they should not do that. It was a critical juncture, in fact, not to seed the low end of the market to new entrants. And a core tenant of innovation is if you're the incumbent, it's essential to invest in potentially disruptive solutions when your core business is strong. If you wait to invest until your core business is in trouble, incentives won't be aligned for you to have the required patience to test and iterate innovations because you will put all this pressure on the innovation to succeed right away. And that's often uh, not what occurs. So it's interesting because as the pandemic unfolded, I wondered, did incumbent health systems miss the opportunity? Because margins were already tightening before the pandemic. And we know that the pressure of the pandemic put immense financial pressure on our healthcare system and on incumbent organizations. So the cash they may have had on hand to invest in innovation and potentially disruptive innovations before the pandemic, they may no longer be in that position now. So while it is no less essential now than it was before, I do worry if it is even more or less likely that they will do that. I think it's kind of the question we're all looking to see how it plays out over the next 12 to 24 months. Ann Summers, it's been such a pleasure to have you join us today. Before we go, what's the best way for listeners to connect with you? So there are a couple ways. As you mentioned, we do share blogs, so they can find those at christiansoninstitute.org. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ann Summers, WH. And then also I would say perhaps the best way is to subscribe to our newsletter. So monthly we send out a healthcare newsletter that highlights what we're writing and what we're reading. And 
listeners can subscribe to that on our website. Fantastic. Thanks again. Stay safe and then best of luck with everything you're doing to help make healthcare consumer first. Thanks for giving us so much to think about today. Thanks so much, Jared. This was fun. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.